Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy summer, everyone. Today, we have another installment of our summer series. Our roundtable discussion today is focused on social-emotional learning, or SEL. And to understand SEL, just say it backwards. Learning emotional and social skills, if you will. It is the process through which young people and adults, yes, this is not just for students, young people and adults acquire, develop, and apply the knowledge, the skills, and the dispositions needed to establish and maintain healthy relationships. And those relationships with ourselves, relationships with others, and relationships with the greater world around us. Those skills also allow for the management of emotions, the achievement of goals, and also the authentic development and feeling of empathy for others. Now, according to the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, that's CASEL, SEL also advances educational equity and excellence through authentic school, family, and community partnerships. Joining me in the roundtable today are Trey Gamage, Jessica Hannigan, and John Hannigan. Trey Gamage is a Dean of Students and SEL consultant from South Carolina. Trey is also the host of the Dash podcast. It has over 200 episodes out at this point, and he's heavily invested in adult SEL coaching. Dr. Jessica Hannigan is an assistant professor in the Educational Leadership Department at California State University, Fresno. She works with schools and districts across the United States designing and implementing effective behavioral systems. Her expertise includes response to intervention, RTI, MTSS, multi-tiered systems of support, as well as PBIS, positive behavioral interventions and supports, also social emotional learning, of course, and that is why Jessica is here joining me today. Her husband, Dr. John Hannigan, is an executive leadership coach for Fresno County Superintendent of Schools in California. He has served in education for over 20 years as a principal, an assistant principal, an instructional coach, and a teacher. Under his leadership, his schools have received numerous awards and recognitions, including California State Distinguished School Award, the Gold Ribbon School, the Title I Academic School, and the Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports Platinum Level. And listeners, just a reminder, be sure to check out the show notes for Trey's, Jessica's, and John's social media handles, as well as all of their other websites and other contact information you can gather there. All right, let's talk social-emotional learning. Joining me today to talk about social-emotional learning is Trey Gamage. Hello there. Thanks for having me. Great to see you, Trey. Also, we have Jessica Hannigan. Great to see you, Tom. Great to see you. And John Hannigan. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to have you all here. Looking forward to our conversation today. And certainly, thanks so much for joining me and and uh, taking time out of your busy schedules. And, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So I want to jump right in to this conversation about social-emotional learning because I know it's always been an important topic, but it's definitely a hot topic now and something that schools are thinking about or rethinking about and trying to reconfigure what it is we do to celebrate and teach and honor the whole child. So Jessica, let's start with the big question. And you know, we know that social-emotional learning has, as I just mentioned, has always been a part of what we've taught students, but it had until recently uh, been more of a hidden curriculum or, or something that we just sort of did in response to a behavioral transgression, if you will. So why is explicit social emotional learning or SEL, why is explicit SEL instruction first important right now? And two, why is it more important now than ever? 
Thank you. Good question, Tom. So even prior to the pandemic, we knew that there was a high level of mental health needs and social emotional needs in our schools. We also knew that there was a disproportionality in school discipline nationwide for specifically students of color and students with learning disabilities. We also knew that educators were struggling with having the tools that they needed to provide these supports. Well, the pandemic just widened that gap and made it really clear that this isn't just a, we do this in reaction to a misbehavior. This is something that we need to do proactively for prevention. And this isn't just kids getting in trouble. This is also kids that need help with those academic behaviors, um, which when John and I pulled, uh, you know, educators during this time, the number one need was, you know, lack of motivation, lack of engagement. Uh, it wasn't students, you know, getting in trouble explicitly like before. And now we have to know, you know, how do we handle that? What does that look like and what do we do? Uh, so now more than ever, it's become clear that, look, this isn't something that we could ignore any longer. This is something that needs to be addressed both for the adults and for the students. I couldn't agree more with you, uh, Jessica. I think, you know, it's one thing when it is subconscious and when you're not thinking about SEL, it still happens. It's, it's the way we live our life. It's you, you practice it. You use SEL every day, whether it's intentional or not. But when you are able to be intentional and you put those practices behind it effectively, now you're preparing students for a workforce. Now you're preparing students for success in life. I've seen some infographics from Castle that say that 75% of students that graduate high school say that they weren't prepared with the social, emotional, or life skills they need to be successful. And in my own emotional intelligence research, I see that success in your workplace is 80% dependent on your emotional intelligence qualities, which line up directly with SEL. So I think um, another great point that you made was not looking at SEL as a deficit type of practice. You do this when, no, SEL is for everybody. This is a part of a curriculum that should be embedded, not for this person or for that person, but adults, parents, administrators, and educators agree that SEL is just as important as academic learning. Yeah, I 100% agree with everything you both just said. Um, <laughs> I, so going pre-pandemic, I mean, SEL is not a new concept. I mean, it's been over, around for over 30 years. I think some of the misconceptions pre-pandemic were that it was, you know, deep breathing activities or mindfulness or, you know, or we'd, we'd have to have it in our lesson plan books for a 30-minute block of time on Fridays. It wasn't, like you said, Trey, something that's just uh, whether we're, we're conscious or subconsciously practicing SEL all day, every day. And so I, I kind of think of it the way that, that it's really surfaced out from this pandemic is the way that No Child Left Behind did to ELD instruction. So those of us that were around in the late 90s, early 2000s, when NCLB came around and those AYP scores came and you saw, whoa, look at these gaps from the way that we're serving the needs of our English learners. And so through compliance, I guess we'll say, uh, really highlighted that need that then became that designated integrated ELD instruction to meet mm -hmm. the needs of English learners. But I think what this pandemic's done with SEL is like, we were all in the same boat. Like we were all feeling it, we were all hurting. 
I mean, we can say regionally, Hurricane Katrina, here's somewhere where where, where a region was hurting, but worldwide, like we were all in the same boat feeling what our kids were feeling and we were feeling it ourselves. So now fast forward into what the pandemic has done now through SCL, I think is now what, like I said, with the, the instruction through compliance, this is now being through compassion. We now know our kids were hurting prior to the pandemic and now they're certainly going to need the support and so when we looked at those behaviors that we were dealing with, here's, I guess, my second point is nine out of 10 of the behaviors that we were dealing with prior to the pandemic were all social behaviors, you know, mm -hmm. uh, disruptions, fighting, inappropriate language. But during the pandemic, we saw that it, it almost flipped on its head and it, nine out of the 10 behaviors were academic behaviors, mm -hmm. absent, uh, students not logging in on time, students not completing their work. So now post pandemic, we're really seeing that both of these are necessary, academic and social behaviors, and they need to be taught as a matter of course, not hoping that they're developed through simple maturation or genetics. Yeah, it's an interesting point, John, you bring up about how, uh, you know, deep breathing and, and some of the ways that social emotional learning was characterized as uh, a bit on the periphery, a bit fluffy. And now we are realizing more than ever that there is uh, an essential nature to understanding those, you know, being being having growth or developing those competencies as a learner sets me up for for academic success. And that leads me to my next question. One of the things that I am a big proponent of is is teaching SEL within the context of academic instruction, that, that we're not creating a separate SEL silo and it's, you know, 30 minutes on Friday, hey, let's teach this mm -hmm. lesson, uh, yet another add-on for teachers to have to navigate. So um, for me, I think it's best approached when it's contextualized. So Trey, I wanna go to you first on this question. Do, do you agree with that sentiment that it should be taught uh, within the context of academic learning? And if so, is there anything that teachers and schools need to do to maximize the impact of SEL when it's blended within academic learning? I'd say yes in, in my initial statement, but to add more context to it, I think yes, you know, again, we're, you use SEL every time that you reflect on an assignment, you have an opportunity to add SEL every time you allow students to work together and they reflect or hold an evaluation on that. You practice SEL every time that you use an opening or closing activity in your class. So you're already using it. It's the intention that makes the difference for me. So if those things are already happening in your class, how much deeper does that impact become when you script out intentionally two to three reflection questions or you intentionally put two to three evaluation questions that that help students practice uh, self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, social management, and they can give feedback to each other or to a classroom. And even in moments where, you know, one of my favorite pieces, if I'm about to tell a story or we're about to go into a project, how can I actually connect this to my students so they can see this is beyond a story problem. This is something that applies to my life. So I agree from that context. Um, but I think as, as SEO comes, necessarily what i don't believe in is just picking a program and implementing that if it's instructional or morning afternoon designated whatever the case is i think seo has to come from a systematic approach where you're not just delivering a curriculum but as we talked about pre-podcast if if i'm not supporting my teachers to deliver the curriculum 
how am I really going to impact my students? And, you know, we may discuss further that there is no teacher prep program that helps teachers practice those SEL skills. So it's kind of a hard to expect them to do that with fidelity um, out of the gate. And that, that is such a good point, Trey. I mean, you just uh, you just hit it right on the head that this it, it, it can't be it can't be that next shiny object that we're trying to chase in education where it's that that prepackaged curriculum. We got to Oh, we, we need SEL. It makes me think because uh, this is what I'm, I'm most afraid of, because this is what I'm hearing a lot of out there is uh, is is that. Well, let me rewind. When I was principal, when Common Core came into our daily lives, all I heard from districts and other administrators, we need to support our teachers. They need training in close reading. Uh, they need to analyze text complexity. We need to use tape diagrams and math. And all of them are great, don't get me wrong, but our teachers were saying, stop it, you're killing us. And so just let me, just let me get good at one thing. And so, and so now what I'm hearing is the same thing now post pandemic, our kids are hurting. They need, they need SEL. You know, teachers need to teach 30 minute blocks daily. We need a new SEL curriculum, just like you said, Trey. And so that's where these are things, just like you said, that opening, closing, we could do this within, in storytelling. Every story has a protagonist that's championing a cause, the hero, or an antagonist who opposes that, where you get these like parallel uh, kind of storylines happening. Fables, all the fables teach some sort of moral lesson where, like the tortoise and the hare, you can teach growth mindset or even self-awareness. I mean, Alex Cacciatani, our good friend and colleague, uh, he teaches with math and SEL. Our work is around those school-wide systems and interventions, but uh, these these are not just like, a, oh, I just, we need to give our teachers something because this is now something else for them to do, but rather how can we, like you said, that to, to be able to maximize this impact that we're blending it within the framework of what we're doing on a daily basis. Yeah. And just to, to add, there's kind of a couple layers I was thinking about here. Um, number one, I 100% agree with both of you. SCL is not a curriculum. SCL is all day, every day, um, and it could be informal or formal instruction and behaviors of the adults in the environment. Um, that's providing that support for our students. Um, I also always think about, you know, the scope and sequence of some SEL curriculum. You teach empathy in April. That is when you teach it. And that is something that John and I really don't agree with. We believe in, and, and in our newest work, Behavior Solutions, we wrote about this. We really believe the use of multiple data points by name, by need, what our students need to respond to what that looks like within our classroom, what that looks like school-wide. So I absolutely agree with everything you all said. The teachers um, need to understand the definition of SEL, the expectation of what this looks like in the classrooms and they need to be supported. Um, for example, if we want our teachers doing it, then we as the admin need to also demonstrate SEL for our teachers. However, the second part of this, and I'm gonna speak from my psych brain now, is that there are students that are gonna need more of and more deconstructed teaching and opportunity to generalize and model these SEL skills. And um, so there also needs to be that system in place school-wide 
when a teacher does need additional support um, and a student does need intervention, which stands for reteaching, um, that they also have that support with uh, specialists who have more, you know, more training in that area as they go up those tiers of supports. Because uh, that's where we hear a lot of the pushback. I understand the student needs this. I understand the student uh, is demonstrating these behaviors because of this function, but I don't know what to do. Right. And so we do need to be at a place where we're really crystal clear what's expected in the classroom. And then what are tier two and tier three opportunities for those that need more layers of support? Yeah. I want to I want to come back. To, we're going to come back to that idea of the tiered support and talk about interventions, because I think that's uh, something that gets lost in the conversation at times, which is wh whenever anything is emotional or behavioral or social, uh, it seems we just think that. Uh, and John, you referred to that program or that shrink wrap binder. And Trey, you had said the same thing, that this idea that we're just going to go to a, a conference. And I mean, you go to any conference and and you look at the publisher's displays, there's 4000 products that are perfect for your school. It's always about context and about fit and, and having it be more organic than just buying a program. But we like the programs, I think, professionally, just because they're easy. I'm using air quotes for those of you listening, kind of easy mm -hmm. to implement, but they often don't really fall short. And then the idea, uh, Jessica, that you brought up about teaching empathy in April, you know, that just leads to people saying, whoo, May 1st, I'm glad that empathy unit is over with, right? As though it's something we just put in the, in the bucket and, and silo that as well. Um, John, you know, a, a, another important aspect of, of SEL is, is that it's not something we do to students, but it's something we do, you know, it's not something we deliver to students. It's something that we do with them. So how do we purposefully, you know, get students involved and activate them as decision makers, act, engage them uh, in SEL while they're still learning, how do we bring them to the forefront? How do we develop some agency uh, and allowing students to take the lead in some of their some of their own learning as they're in the midst of learning themselves? Absolutely. I mean, that's just like you said, that agency, student voice, um, just that safe, predictable environment. All of these structures are, are all part of SEL and part of the way that we, I mean, it's like you said, it's not a thing to do to students. It's just something that we create. And so we can do this by creating our classrooms as that safe, predictable space where we can acquire these skills together. And so, uh, so let's say, so you, uh, you had mentioned uh, these students as these decision makers mm -hmm. to engage them. So if responsible decision-making is one of the SEL skills, well, there's a lot of different you know, components to that where we're teaching them how to identify problems, analyze situations, how to solve problems. And so doing this in that safe community where, okay, if we're going to teach them the the main, you know, bucket, which would be responsible decision making, a skill of that would be identifying problems. And so we like to make this connection to the academics because I think that's what most are familiar with. That would be like saying, teach the common core standard of numbers and operations. Okay, that's very big and broad. So what would be a skill within that that we can teach and measure? So multiplying fractions could be an example of that. So we like to kind of frame it in the same way too, as far as what skills within those main competencies are we looking at? And so again, under that responsible decision-making, if we were to say identifying problems is a skill that we would like to teach, 
we could provide daily prompts or scenarios where students are identifying, hey, here's a problem, whether it's within our community or within our school, and then they can they can write like either through that scenario what that student you know those decisions the student should have made instead or if we're analyzing uh, situations would be another skill we can pose a situation that's impacting our our class or our community analyze the problem using multiple data points and then students can then work in groups and then share out their findings or solutions so solving problems through class meetings doing it in that safe space where they they can share their ideas, uh, but like you said, man, that 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 student voice and that agency is so critical. And just one last real quick thing: mm -hmm. I had my third grade class come to me, come to me when I was a principal, and share that they had created a proposal to increase the circulation of our library. We want to add books to the library. So I think their lesson that they were doing this through was um, uh, it was a writing. Uh, what, what would be a writing? Uh, this may be having to be edited out, but the <laughs> but the, the writing prompt on uh, uh, persuasive writing. So the third grade class was doing a lesson on persuasive writing. So take the other's point of view and you know and create this solution. So they they charged to 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 raise funds, pitch it that if I would match it, I went a step further to have our parent group match it, and we ended up getting ten thousand new books in our library. And this is a title one school, so that's a lot of that's a significant chunk. But but that agency that this third grade class came and uh, you know, like trade mentioned earlier, this is all part of SEO. Yeah, that's that's great. Those are wonderful examples, and it, that those take me back to um, I've been taking notes the whole time. My first experience in education was um, as a it was the civic education project. It was a service learning project out of Northwestern and um, Johns Hopkins and Cal Berkeley. And we went to, so my first experience, I went to Baltimore, Johns Hopkins for three weeks with some academically gifted students. I was a resident coordinator there. And while we were there, we had a couple of different service projects. So while we were in Baltimore, we went to a, um, I want to say a, a, uh, a garden, a community garden. And we helped clean up the garden at a church. Um, we went to different markets and explored. We talked to a lot of people in the neighborhood and we asked them what they needed. The same thing happened at a service project in Chicago um, where we went to a, a teen center and we helped clean out a storage unit that they had. And so asset-based community development looks at not, not telling a community, hey, here's what you need and here's what I'm gonna do for you. But it instead says, okay, let's, let's asset map. What are your talents? What are your tools? What are your resources? Where are your strengths at? And how do we use those to continue to improve? So for one thing with me, I think SEL in my mind, I wrote this down, leads to more college and career prep. So with my students, we we do, we are a school that uses SEL in homeroom, but those skills help me gauge specifically where a student is strong at. And so once it comes to doing the college and career prep, you know, we can then find them different job shadow opportunities, college and career programs or, or certification pathways that meet their needs um, down the road. And, and last one, I want to use an example for adults as well. How do adults practice these things in a more engaged fashion? Um, to answer it more directly as well, for adults, there's an assessment, emotional intelligence assessment that I'll use. And 
It'll break down self-recognition with the self-management, but you mentioned the components, John. So those components might be self-awareness, cause and effect. How does a cause affect the situation? Self-appreciation, consciousness, and emotional identification. So, you know, after you're able to be aware of your emotions or what an SEL competency is, then you can start to understand it and actually develop the skill. But it, so in class, if I'm teaching that lesson and you make a point that really draws to my SEL, I do this a lot when students talk out where, where other teachers may get mad or feel like they're being disrespected. I'm going to use it as a teaching moment and pause and say, wait a minute. So you just approach them like this. How do you think that makes them feel? Well, let's let's draw this to the situation. And now where we are engaging and I'm using what you're great at um, to implement the SEL skills that everybody needs. And just to add to that, the L in SEL stands for learning. And so if um, we want our students to learn it, we need to teach it. And teaching is not just one modality. So I love what you both mentioned about service learning projects and student voice, because as we've surveyed students and what they appreciate in those classrooms that provide you know, what we consider model SEL is they always say that teacher's authentic, that teacher connects what we're doing to real life. So we understand that what we're doing is life skills that are gonna help us in the future. And we actually have a voice no matter what age we are. We have a voice in our learning and that also contributes to motivation and engagement, by the way. So they're all connected. So as uh, you know, we're thinking about this question, I was also thinking about passion projects. So there's service learning projects and there's also passion projects where students are developing projects that they're passionate about. Um, and then also a tool that we use, and I'll, I'll leave it there because I could go on forever with this question, <laughs> are empathy interviews. And so we really talk about empathy interviews and how they could be utilized to not only model empathy, as we're working with our students and we have a protocol and template for that, um, but then also give them opportunity to go out into the community and conduct these empathy interviews as well. So it's not just teaching it, it's actually giving them time to model and generalize it so that they could use it in real life. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is the most important thing about SEL. We had talked uh, prior uh, to the podcast and also in your responses a little bit about adults and and you have once again reminded me and made me think of the importance that we pay attention to the SEL of the adults in the school we make this assumption that that teachers uh, can just pick up this idea of teaching you know the five competencies etc but we may have to as as colleagues as leaders be attentive to where adults are so let me throw this to any of you to to jump in uh, thoughts around how we, as a teacher, if if I'm maybe not as competent in some of those, many of those, a few of those aspects or those competencies, what, what can schools or districts do to try to support the teachers as they simultaneously try to help students learn these social emotional competencies? I think the, the number one place to start, and this is where I'm really taking my education consultancy as well. The, the first step, number one, 
is what we're talking about in implementing with adults. So I think the, the best place to integrate is your professional learning communities. Mm -hmm. If your school doesn't have a PLC or if that's typically structured and only focused on academics, that's a consistent meeting. That's one of the teachers only time to collaborate with our students. That's something that should be embedded or always practiced right there. So as a as a SEL team, if you don't have one of those, an SEL team to put together discussion questions or a short assessment. Castle has a lot of resources. A lot of people, districts usually have plenty of resources that you can use to just start to practice it. We don't need to master the skill and it's not gonna happen overnight, but can I introduce it? Can I make you more aware that yes, and the SEL is for you too. It's not just for your students, but SEL professional learning communities. I think that's the simplest way, the easiest way to do so. And I think as a district, again, I'm giving away um, here what I what I think is the preference as a district. How can I provide an SEL coach not to to yes oversee the whole program, but to work directly with an SEL team on how you're going to implement the next discussion question or conversation formally or informally in those PLC meetings. I think that's a streamlined way, principal designated person, SEL, team lead designated person, implement into your SEL um, PLCs. And that can be a 10 minute section or once a month dedicating an entire PLC section to um, SEL, if you ask me. Yeah. And, uh and, and also to your work too, Trey, that you do a lot with the emotional intelligence. If we've got leaders who aren't emotionally intelligent and we're just steamrolling our initiatives onto our staff and being completely tone deaf to the workload that they have and the things that they're, the challenges that are already on their plate, we just keep adding to it. Um, that, that, that will also deteriorate the, the, the social emotional, uh, you know, culture of our staff and so as our as our school functions as that plc that that just like we gave those examples giving student voice and students having that that agency in their own learning if if everything's top down from a campus that's not a plc so our plc is the school we've got teacher voice teachers have that voice and agency into the decisions it's shared leadership where that that also kind of helps the, with that 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 social emotional culture and uh, you know teachers not feeling that they're being micromanaged into the ground and they feel that their voice is heard and that they're valued as the professionals that they are. It um, it it gives a little bit of a new meaning. You know, we talked earlier about SEL is not something we do to students; it's something we do with them, and we talked about it with them as in raising their voice engaging them but it actually is literally something that we can do with them and we ourselves as adults can begin to learn uh, alongside of our students uh, in that social emotion you're absolutely right john if if initiatives are 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 being driven down the throats of our of our our colleagues um you're not you're not being very socially aware and you certainly are are damaging relationships uh, and you may not be aware of what's happening in your school for sure. So let's talk about those five SEL competencies that Castle has identified, uh, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, uh, relationship skills. And of course, we talked a little bit earlier about responsible decision-making. Um, Jessica, of those five, if we're thinking about, you know, where we begin or how things become more, um, you know, prominent in our school, 
are are the two selves the place to begin? The idea of self awareness and self management is that the place where we begin, or are there literally multiple points of entry for schools or for individual classroom teachers to begin to uh, bring SEL to the forefront in in their contexts? Okay, so I have two points in regards to this question. The first one, and I know I shouldn't have a favorite, but I do. I think my <laughs> favorite SEL competencies are self-regulation and self-monitoring. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that those are competencies that are essential for students and adults. So really the definition of SEL is the inner relationship between our emotions and behaviors and vice versa, and how we could recognize where we're at. I'm simplifying this definition and what SEL tools that we have within us to respond. So when I think of self-regulation and self-monitoring, I feel like those two are such a good place to start. However, I also want to know I'm in complete agreement with um, what Trey and John talked about. And um, in our new work and this work, um, we wrote this work because of this reason um, with Mike Matos and Austin Buffum is we truly also believe that you function as a professional learning community with the focus on behavior SEL, similar to how we do with academic content, and you assign a response whether it's prevention, whether it's intervention, whether it's a remediation. And there's two ways you're looking at that response and these competencies. Are we looking at school-wide data and really honing in on which one of these competencies school-wide we really need to focus on uh, is one way with your you know, school-wide team. And then are our actual teacher teams looking, just like Trey mentioned, together in their collaborative teacher team meetings, looking at data to really see, okay, you know what? My class is needing some focus on self-management. Here's what our data is telling us. So here's where we're gonna, you know, here's how we're gonna address that. And then we're gonna come back to see if what we did actually made a difference or not. So, um, so anyway, to answer that question, I believe every competency is critical, but I also believe it needs to be based on data and it needs to be ongoing to see if it's working or not. What we did is actually working or not to change the narrative. And so that's the big part of our work. And um, we have processes for each tier of how you could function as a PLC with behavior SEL data because of that. And, and so both the selfs are both tightly linked. I mean, if, if uh, for example, if I can't uh, stop and calm down when I'm upset, which is self-management, it requires the skills like recognizing I never and have a problem with that the emotions <laughs> and being able to consider perhaps how, how it's affecting my choices. So, I mean, if I'm like doing Hulk smash in the classroom, flipping desks and just announcing that I'm extremely upset. Okay. You have a very, very, uh, very high self-awareness. That's really good for you, <laughs> but you're lacking those self-management skills to be able to stop and calm down when you're upset. And so they do kind of go hand in hand. And so in terms of where to start, and that's where we love the, the, the function as a PLC and assign RTI kind of is kind of like our tagline within uh, that behavior solutions is starting with the behaviors that we're seeing. Start with the behaviors that we're seeing and then connect it to the skills that are potentially lacking so that then we can support. That's, that's where we can start. And so rather than it being, 
here's where you need to start and then forcing it upon like school-wide, here's going to be our focus, but rather leaving it up to the, the collaborative teams or the, the grade level departments or what have you to be able to say, you know what, our students aren't turning in homework. Okay, that's a self-management uh, issue. Let's let's work on providing the tools that we can provide so that students are turning in their work on time. So it's based on with SMART goals the same way we do for academic content. And so rather than kind of having that scripted, here's where we start, allowing then a faculty to say school-wide, this can be an issue that we would like to uh, approach first. But then here's the other key thing, and sorry, I'm just going to really quick. But they, they need to define what mastery looks like. So, Tom, just like when you're doing assessment, right. if we're a fourth grade team teaching orders of operations, we create that assessment, but we haven't defined what mastery looks like. And then we're going to collaborate around, uh, you know, that assessment data. Her class used calculators. Mine didn't. It, you know, it just skews the data. So if we're going through as a faculty saying this is what we uh, want to focus on first or what we want to expect our students to demonstrate, we all as adults need to be clear of what mastery of that would look like because I hear so many times, especially at the secondary level, whether it's cell phone use or chewing gum or what have you, dress code, where I've gone through periods one, two, three, and then fourth period I get dress coded or fourth period. Now you're picking on me and periods one, two, and three, those teachers are cool, but you're picking on me either, even though fourth period is just following what we all had agreed upon. And so mm -hmm. I would say whatever we start with, we need to define what mastery is and be consistent. Otherwise, it sends the wrong message to our students. Right. That, that's that's so good. I feel like we've got so much meat in there and I appreciate how, you know, the, the response of integrating in POCs is getting deeper with, okay, in those POCs, here's what you need to target. What are the data points that you have? And I'll kind of going back to the, the question too, are the selves most important? I'd say um, yes, because you kind of start with the self-awareness. Once you have the awareness of your own emotions and temperament, then you can start to understand the discipline and the management piece that starts to connect with other people. But if you're not in a clear understanding of yourself, then how can you how can you really display that empathy? So um, we've got to build that before April so that by April we're already practicing um, some of the other practices. But I actually split it up kind of two ways as well. And I said you can think about it as self versus social. And I know Castle's Wheel says um, relationship management, but you could also say social management. So mm -hmm. self-awareness, self-management versus social awareness, social management. But then I'd also say um, the awareness versus the management. You know, the, the, that awareness side, being aware of self and being aware of your social surroundings versus managing yourself individually and managing yourself in those social surroundings can be two different aspects. But as you mentioned, I think the data tells you where you need to focus and, and what your school's mission, vision, model, values are will also help you determine what the, the correct competency or model of SEL is for you to focus on. That's starting starting with your, your data or the, the behaviors that you're seeing is, I think, very wise advice because it really does lead to, I think, a more rapid buy-in from faculty to understand why we need to pivot, why we need to move in a particular direction, because clearly we are seeing these behaviors, these actions, or this lack of self-awareness, et cetera. We're seeing this manifest and therefore there's a need identified. And I think usually when you start with a need, um, you don't have to convince people that this is an important way to go. And, and John, you know, you talked earlier about assessment. This is one of the things I love about assessment is it's ubiquitous. The idea of establishing criteria 
it doesn't always have to be in, in a st strict academic form, but the idea of what does pro-social behavior look like? What does it mean to be self-regulatory about myself behaviorally learning? Can we articulate that to the students so the students then can self-assess and become aware of themselves and manage themselves and regulate themselves? And when they re when they recognize an escalation happening or when they when they start to feel a certain way in their relationships or their interactions, they can become aware of that. And that will only have a residual effect uh, that I think is positive. So, um, Trey, I want to come back to you now and I want to talk a little bit about student discipline, because, you know, we know, despite all of these efforts, uh, the SEL efforts, uh, that some students are still going to break rules and, and uh, act in antisocial ways and. And so setting aside the, the idea of infrequent minor infractions, so we'll set those aside. Those, mm -hmm. you know, those aren't a major deal, and we can handle those. If a student is late to class once a month or once every other month, we're not talking about that. We're talking about, you know, sometimes there's some serious issues that happen in school. So how does SEL focus, how does an SEL focus within a school change the nature of student discipline and, and maybe sort of for listeners and for all of us, contrast that with the more traditional kind of punitive approach to discipline uh, mm. that has been a part of the fabric of schools for a while now. How, how does SEL change student discipline within a school, do you think, from your perspective? That's a, that's a great point. I'll start with um, the traditional. I think traditional discipline in the traditional public school, um, you hear the term zero tolerance. You get in a fight, you go home for five days. You do this, you get that consequence. And there's no room for the person. And that's that's something I think we've talked about all day is the person always comes first. So if I have a kid that's acting out, there might be something beyond that fight. Or there should be some trends in my data that I'm seeing that go beyond today that show me even more about what's going on. So traditionally, your rule book says this action, this consequence, this action, this consequence, this repeat offense, this repeat consequence. And it's just more of a ladder type of situation. But where you go now, and, and this is actually kind of a restorative approach is kind of what I lean on, restorative SEL, um, is, is one, tracking that behavior over time. So if I'm starting my day with SEL or integrating those practices all the time, I'm making room for my students to have a say in what's going on. So. I had a lot of fights this year in, in my school when um, students came back to class. They hadn't been together for over a year and some change. When they got back together, they weren't sure how to interact with each other. So instead of them just coming back to school and sending them right back home, we sat down as a class because harm was done to the entire class. So instead of learning our social studies that period, we went outside to our blue tent and we sat down and we talked through everybody's role in the in the situation and everybody who needed to apologize apologize everybody that didn't didn't um and then i i may or may not have took some additional time to talk to um the victim or the offender and and you know had a different consequence that we kind of agreed to or ideally would agree to given you know what it is but i think an approach of saying hey okay something has happened here and it's not okay so one, before before anybody goes home, period, y'all are going to talk to each other and we're going to understand what happened here. Because what you're not going to do is run away from this or just go home and let it get away with you. No, we have to restore the harm that was done before y'all can actually go back into the classroom, if it is one of those more grand type of experiences. And that's just my one example I use for now. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, just uh, great points, Trey. I was just processing some of what you were saying. Um, we also, these are life skills. So we need to make sure our students know that they can't get in a fight when they don't agree with something or they perceive something to be unfair in real life. They could get fired. They, they could have real life big consequences. So that's how important this is. Um, couple things. Um, John and I did a lot of um, this work at our schools and really advocated for some changes in laws and using the alternative discipline approach, other means of correction in lieu of exclusionary traditional practices. Because we knew not only from experience, but 30 plus years of research that it doesn't work. And the definition of discipline is to teach. And so um, if that's what it is, then we need to figure out what SEL skills do we need to teach our students when they are demonstrating these behaviors. And um, in our approach, and I'll let John add to, add to it, um, there's three buckets. So there's the restorative piece. So thank you, Trey, that is exactly the restorative piece, the reflective piece, and then the instructional piece. Mm -hmm. And that instructional piece really comes from what was the behavior, what was the function of that behavior, and what is the replacement behavior, which we consider SEL skills that we need to not only teach, but give these students opportunity to demonstrate and generalize. So um, we use that framework and it's really, you know, changed the way that we approach um, discipline and um, there's no way we could go back. And this is what we advocate for uh, really nationwide and we'll never stop advocating for it. Actually, surprisingly, the definition of discipline actually has two. One is to punish for the sake of obedience, enforcing obedience. Yeah, I ignore and that the one. The second is to teach. <laughs> I've never seen a word that has two polar opposite definitions of the same word. But discipline, uh, we prefer, obviously, to teach. But I think in terms of, uh, uh, like you said, Tom, as far as like those more traditional punitive approaches to school discipline, I think, I think it's a lot of site leaders. This isn't part of, uh, you know, admin credential programs or anything. They don't really teach alternative discipline. Uh, and so then, you know, people go out, they get their, you know, admin jobs, and then they discipline the way they were disciplined. And so I think a lot of it is just a lack of tools. Like, we'll, we'll present this work and people are like, okay, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm getting, I, I get you. And then all of a sudden, okay, these two kids just got in a fight. Now what? I don't, I don't know what to do with these kids. So the easiest thing to do would just be to send them home for three days. And then if they do it again, just like you said, Trey, then they're going home for five days. Then if they do it again, it's just like this ladder of consequences where these students are still, you know, caught in this cycle where they're not really learning from that. And so uh, just like Jess shared, so our, our kind of alternative discipline framework, they do need that reflective piece, which is SEL, metacognition, having to reflect on the decisions that they've made, um, that restorative piece, just like you said, Trey, to repair that harm, and then uh, instructional, which is um, targeting that function of the behavior and providing those um, those replacement skills so they don't re-engage in this work. And so when we started this work, and going on now 10 years, still at, the, at my same school, it was the 10-11 school year. So my school does not have a suspension. We have not had a suspension since the 10-11 school year. I'm at the county office, but they've continued with those practices. But the state of California actually flagged us and said you made an error you put zero when for suspension so we just we just saw unless it was a firearm or brandished a knife or you know 
something where we're calling 911 anyway, we can handle it. I don't care what happens on my campus, we can handle it. And if it's not one of those big five uh, mandatory expulsions, but still, if it is, if they're going to an alternative placement, they still need to go through that alternative framework to learn from it because as adults, you can't get away with stuff like that. It makes me, as, as you all were answering there, just reminds me of so much of how important it is for that self-awareness piece when I can recognize what my triggers are, when I can recognize, you know, technically what we call the antecedent, what leads to that challenging behavior or that antisocial response. Um, how can we neutralize that, make it irrelevant? And then at the same time, recognizing that these aversive situations are going to manifest and students understanding a pro-social response to that situation. And I think one of the things that often gets missed in all of this work is that, you know, students have the right to their feelings. They have the right to be angry. They have the right to, to feel how they feel. What they, what they don't have necessarily the right to do is to act in an antisocial way as a result of those feelings. So it's okay to be angry, but how can we teach that student how to cope with that anger? How can we teach them how to not punch their neighbor, but, but to, but to articulate or to find ways to de-escalate in ways that are more conducive to the environment. But it also makes me think of a bigger, larger question that I think is most relevant today, which is the rule book itself. Something I've been thinking about and, and exploring with a number of guests, guests so far on the podcast is the nature of what it means to, to display good or appropriate behavior in school and where that came from. And, and we know that the traditions of school behavior and what it means to behave come from the roots of the, you know, European church. It comes from a white Eurocentric uh, tradition. And the way that we define what is good behavior in school is something I think all schools need to reconsider and think about how do we define what is appropriate in our context, uh, given the, the multicultural nature and background of so many of our students and how we've traditionally defined what is appropriate, what is applicable. Any thoughts on that, that redefining of the rule book, any work that you've done or any ideas uh, that you've experienced so far about how we redefine what it means to be appropriate uh, in the school context when it comes to student discipline? Sure, I'll, I'll start, I'll take that one. Uh, the, the, <laughs> I think it, it goes back into teaching, yeah. that, that, that these skills aren't just acquired through just once I reach a certain grade that there they are, I've got all these skills. And so um, if, if they haven't been taught, they haven't been learned. And so, mm -hmm. so all we're doing is then reacting to behaviors that as a learner, I don't know what the adults at this campus expect from me. Right. All I'm just getting is just hammered for everything. Like, don't do this, stop this, stop that. And it just creates that, that negative energy where, mm -hmm. Uh, you can't necessarily, you know, it, it, I think it's those, like you said, those, those, the, those white Eurocentric kind of religious types of obedience, but not right. taking into account, um, you know, the, all the different, different uh, demographics, subgroups, everyone on our campus that is, is a unique individual that, uh, that needs to be celebrated, but there are then ways that we can teach in each location. This is, yeah. the, you know, the same way we have, you know, procedures and structures within our classrooms. We can do that at a macro level on our school-wide. Uh, and then once the behaviors are taught, then we can use that multi-tiered system of support to then provide the reteaching the same way we do on the academic context. Mm -hmm. and if, 
If I could add to that, I think um, to answer your question, we need student voice in what that looks like and sounds like. What what are appropriate behaviors? What they perceive to be appropriate? What what we know about culturally relevant pedagogy in our schools and classrooms as we're designing that. Mm -hmm. So it can't just be, which we do see a lot, oh, I downloaded a behavior matrix, I'm doing PBIS, my acronym is this, so here's a matrix and here we go. That's when you start seeing exactly what you're saying is just it's kind of created for you. It's, It's not something that's meaningful. It Um, it really needs to become an authentic, all stakeholders are part of really thinking about what are those essential standards of our school? What what do we believe our students should leave with um, for life that we are teaching them? And how are we all working towards that? What do our students think? What do our staff think? What do the admin think? Mm -hmm. What do our librarians think? What does everyone think so that we could get that in a place where it's authentic and meaningful? And then we, you know, we could adjust that if it's not working for our school or our classrooms. It's not just a, we have it all printed out and that's it. We, we need to be able to have those conversations if what we're doing isn't meeting the needs of our clients, our, which are our students. And not to jump in prior to, but I'll, I'll give it, I'll pass the baton to Trey, but I just wanted to, she just got me thinking of something that the same way that we don't expect students to come into our schools already having everything learned, the same applies to behavior that they spend 60% of their awake life with us. <laughs> so if they don't have those skills, it's on us. We need to provide Hello. it. It's on us. We yeah, need right. to provide it. That traditional is where, where we expect them to come in having these skills acquired and then we punish them when they don't. If they don't have them, it's up to us to provide them. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I don't I don't even have much to add on that end. I would say like on, on my experience on the consulting end and now as a school leader, I'm a dean of students. I am not a rule follower. I don't like to be um, uh, I, I don't like to conform per se. So I'm a person that, OK, give me the rules so I know how far out of bounds I can color. <laughs> and I appreciate the teachers who let me color on the lines like I like to because it's pushing the envelope and being innovative. So for me, um, you know, policy is difficult, but I'm, I'm learning a lot more now how necessary it is. So I haven't had a chance at this point to prioritize um, what behavior policy looks like but i know that behavior practice wise it's been important to me and for us as a school to put sel on the front end as a pro-social behavior so that by the time we get to a place where we need to correct behavior i can already lean on some of the skills um, that we've been building in our sel program mm-hmm. so i can defer to those skills if, if i happen to reach a situation where a student has a consequence yeah, I'll, I'll tell anyone who will listen that one of my top five lessons learned in my 30 years now in education is when I when I learned to redefine discipline to mean support and inclusion, not removal and isolation. That was the proverbial game changer for me for, as an administrator, just thinking about discipline in a completely different way. And, and the irony, uh, at least in my experience, was being able to redefine it that way I found this apparent dichotomy, which was I was never 
tougher and more demanding on students. And yet my relationships were never stronger with students because of that approach, that it wasn't about removal, isolation. It wasn't, you know, exclusionary practices, as you mentioned earlier, Jessica. It was about support. It was about instruction. It was about inclusion. Taking that mindset really, you know, again, I know it's cliche to say game changer, but it really was top five lessons in my career for sure, uh, without question. Now, again, we have... Um, Intervention, of course, is going to be necessary because not all actions, not all behaviors are created equally. And we know that one thing that we've learned through the three-tiered framework of whether it's RTI, MTSS, PBIS, the three-tiered framework always reminds us that the intensity of the intervention has to match the intensity of the presenting challenge. And so making sure that we are able to add those interventions. So John, I want to bring it to you and talk a little bit, circle back a little bit with something you mentioned earlier about intervention and um, and the idea of what does intervention look like? And I'm thinking about the three-tiered continuum, of course, and, and thinking about what it looks like with SEL. And specifically, I'm thinking about uh, self-awareness. We, I think we all understand, or many will understand, the idea of tier two or tier three interventions for academic learning. If I can't add fractions, if I can't write a persuasive or an argumentative piece, if I can't balance chemical equations, et cetera, whatever, whatever the academic learning is. When it comes to something like self-awareness, um, what if someone just can't see themselves as objectively as they, they could or should, if I lack that self-awareness, what, what exactly does intervention look like for that student or that group of students? Yeah, that's a great question. So first, since we're talking intervention, the first thing I'd ask is, is have we first taught these skills? <laughs> since the intervention would be uh, the reteaching of those skills, have we first taught those? And then, so that would be then the tier two approach. Tier three then would be like you said, the intensity to meet the, the needs. So tier three would be much more structured, uh, much more frequent of the reteaching of those skills. And so um, the one of the biggest flaws that I think that we see a lot of is where once we get into that tier two, tier three, that it falls solely on the classroom teacher and it absolutely just cannot. And so this is, I think, where schools get it wrong in many cases. And so this is where going back to that function as a PLC and assign RTI appropriately is how do we then get those experts that, that are, you know, that design interventions and those reteaching to then come in alongside with input from the teacher team or the classroom teacher as an individual to get that input to design those supports for those students. And so again, around specifically the, um, let's say the student who lacks self-awareness. So let's say tier one would be the way that they having trouble seeing themselves providing classroom mantras. So I'm just trying to create that experience. Bear with me here. Tier one as a student in this classroom or on this campus, this is what I experience daily where mantras we've seen to be very effective where it's you're seen, you're heard, you're loved or be here, be you, belong, or whatever it is, but it just creates that sense of community. Um, again, or or those mood meters that we see, you know, where the there's the the four quadrants where students are able to identify their emotions when they're either walking into the classroom or some way uh, in a ritual where we're building that emotional intelligence. Students are identifying their emotions, but also increasing their vocabulary around those emotions instead of going beyond just sad 
mad, happy, but but within that that mood meter and uh, building the their vocabulary around that emotional intelligence, I think is critical for that uh, that self uh, self awareness. Tier two would be something I don't know. Maybe this could be a tier one point five. I guess maybe still something that could be classroom handled, which would be like a red, yellow, green. These are cards. Uh, our good buddy Tom Herrick, he, he's got a new one out that's uh, trauma sensitive instruction. He's got some good stuff in there, but one was the the uh, red, yellow, green card. So if I'm on yellow, that's that's a signal for me as a teacher that I need to help monitor, uh, you know, to, as a check in. But those are just some of those tier one structures that that helps me to kind of, you know, just a litmus test on the student state of mind so that they can gradually gain control of their emotions. But then if we also going back to that function, if, if, if that self-awareness is that they're blurting out or the class clown or those kinds of things, you, we need to hear through the function of their behavior, which is attention seeking, you know, notice me, involve me. So what are then some effective prevention through encouragement that we can do to kind of curb those. And so first, before getting into those intervention pieces, I would say, have we created these tier one uh, prevention? Uh, like Mike Matos always says, the best intervention is prevention. Yeah, I would I would agree. I mean, you, you hit most of those on the head, especially with the tiers. Um, one that I may add to tier one would be real-time feedback. And I first heard that term uh, from a coaching standpoint, if an observer is coaching a teacher, you may put up a whiteboard and give them real-time feedback. Um, but, you know, I, I have in situations, my students like to call each other out. So, and they call me out as well. They've called me out for several things. So I'll call them back out too. That's a relationship that we've built. That's that's um, a community that we have together. So if I have an, a student attack one of their other students um, after they have just done something the opposite you know you may have praised one student for this but then you attack another student for the same thing i want to bring awareness to you and say hey do you recognize that you just let that person slide for taking your candy you you let you let the friend to your left have three pieces of your candy but the person to your right asked you for one and you had a fit why why did that happen like can you talk to me about what happened there and so they might say, oh, well, I just don't like them. Well, like, how can you go about that in a more appropriate way? So, you know, for some some instances, we're teaching in real time and having to build that relationship to a place where I can have that conversation in front of a classroom is one thing, but you may also just document it. And when you go out to recess or lunch, like, hey, you know, I noticed you were, that, that wasn't really right how you treated, you know, your classmate. Um, something along those lines. So that, that's a tier one intervention that I may add to what you said, John, but I think you, you kind of covered that pretty well there. I think the point, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the, the point about prevention is so critical. The idea that the first tier is really about preventing and anticipating uh, issues or potential challenges. And therefore, if we can pre-teach those skills around self-awareness uh, as the example we were talking about, I think that that goes a long way to preventing an escalation in the numbers of students who lack that self-awareness and certainly making the issues, as, as you all know, making the issues more complex are the ideas of multiple functions. So, for example, a student behaves in a certain way, not just to 
to gain peer attention, but also to avoid challenging work. And therefore, uh, it can serve that, that there can be multiple functions involved, and that makes the work even more complex. Or what is often referred to as response classes. I don't act the same way every time there's an aversive situation, and therefore there's an array of responses that a teacher might see from a student given the same trigger antecedent. So it's it's an interesting dynamic that makes things all the more complex as we try to navigate through. But I, I love the point about prevention because I think so many times we wanna to rush to intervention, but we skip the step of trying to lay that foundation. So as we close out today, uh, and, and this has really been a great conversation. I've really appreciate your, your expertise is is obvious, and I know listeners are are certainly benefiting from that for sure. As as am I. Um, I want to finish up, Jessica, with uh, beginning with you with talking about where do teachers and schools begin. We know that most schools will have some informal aspects of SEL happening in their schools or even in their classrooms, even if it's haphazard. You know, teachers are usually teaching in some way, shape or form the whole child. So there are some aspects in place. But but how do teachers and schools begin in earnest with uh, social emotional learning? How do they bring that uh, to a higher level of prioritization? How do they make it a prominent part of what they do on a day to day basis? I'm going to come to all three of you on this one. But Jessica, let's begin with you. Where do schools or teachers begin? I think the first place that I would recommend for schools and teachers to begin is defining what they even mean by SEL. We hear so many different definitions um, out there. And when, when there's so many definitions and acronyms and people don't know how they fit in together, there's confusion and dissonance and it makes people think this is one more thing to do instead of we're integrating this in the work that we're already doing. So number one, defining really the common definition and then from the leadership end that this is one of the, the highest priorities at this school, similar to any academic priority. This is not this is not optional. This is something that we need to do and in using the data to, to really make that case. And then the second step would be really working on, and I'll hand it over, um, to John to add to this, but then really working on prioritizing. So we actually have a prioritizing rating scale and um, our, we, we wrote SEL from a distance anytime, anywhere, right during the pandemic to really help educators do this uh, because they were so overwhelmed with all these skills and where to begin. So we have a prioritizing um, forced ranking skill, which is where, whether it's your leadership team or your teacher teams, to really start there, to, to really take the behaviors you're seeing and really prioritize what SEL skill um, do we need to begin with because we can't do this all at once. So definition, purpose, and alignment to your mission and vision, and then really working on prioritizing where we're gonna begin. Yeah, I, I, I would say just letting them know that you're doing a lot of these things already. This isn't just some new initiative that's coming down the tracks. This is something that you're already doing. And so, again, not not messaging that this is now one more thing that you need to do, but like weaving it into what we're currently doing. We're not stacking this on top of your already overflowing plates. We're just weaving this into what you're doing. So, hey, you know, when you greet your students at the door, that's SEL. When you start your lesson with a warm welcome or end it with an optimistic closure, that's SEL. Goal setting, these things that, you know, creating those 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 uh, the, those self-driven learners that are 
setting goals for themselves and looking at their own uh, assessment results. And then that's all SEL. And so that it's that it's uh, those social behaviors, but it's also those academic behaviors that we're preparing. And then don't get caught up in the I need to memorize the five competencies or whatever. It's like don't just what's your outcome that you want from your students and just start there. So no student has ever been harmed by, uh, you know, giving them some self-awareness skills when you thought they were self-management skills. Just <laughs> just start somewhere. Start somewhere. Don't get afraid. Yeah, love those. Love those. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick with the adults on my end. I'll say the first place to start is to support your teachers to impact your students. So find a way for you to get a benchmark um, numbers on your teachers. How can you give them a, a self-assessment on their SEL skills or an emotional intelligence of their SEL skills? There are a few adult SEL programs right now, but then I say start those discussions. I think there's 80 to 90% of teachers say that they've had informal SEL conversations or PD. So make those SEL POCs much more intentional, spend time having deliberate, direct instructions, and get a feel for SEL. I say you can focus on adult SEL for a year before you even need to touch a curriculum. As we look at the pro-social classroom, teachers with stronger social-emotional competence have better classroom management, better student-teacher relationships, and better implementation of SEL um, practices. So start with your teachers, and they'll impact your students. Yeah. It is uh, certainly a, a really important topic for us to consider. And I know listeners, as I said earlier, listeners have, have been, benefited tremendously from your expertise. And I've certainly appreciated uh, your time today. I look forward to reconnecting with you on this topic. I think we could probably go another hour, maybe another three hours on, on SEL and, and just dig deeper into what we've talked about today. But uh, Trey, uh, Jessica, John, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. What we definitely don't need with SEL is another shrink wrap binder. Now I'm not throwing shade on all of the programs that are out there. Like anything, I'm sure there are some great ones, some good ones, some mediocre ones, and of course, some awful ones. As well-intentioned as any of those programs might be, make no mistake, their number one goal is sales and mass consumption. That's their business, so I'm not blaming them. I know that sounds cynical and diabolical, and, and I do believe that the majority of folks involved in creating those programs authentically care and do want to provide relevant learning experiences for students, but the more contextualized those programs become, they become more niche, right? So just like textbooks or any other resource, mass consumption or sales is one of the priorities. What I am saying is that we, the educators, need to be more thoughtful consumers and know exactly what we want, and then maybe go out and find the program or the curriculum that aligns with our goals, aligns with our context, our nuances, our idiosyncrasies, our culture. What we do need with SEL is to stop the pendulum swings. Now, I would have thought, now after my 30th year in education, that the pendulum swings would have stopped, but they haven't. In every acute moment, the pendulum swing and the disproportionate emphasis seems right. Now, I remember back in the late 1990s, 
on the heels of the 1999 Columbine High School massacre. Our attention acutely pivoted to safe schools, mental health, pro-social skill development, and inclusive environments. But come the mid-2000s, we were already looking for shiny objects. The standards movement and the various accountability movements had us once again pivoting back to academic goals, literacy, numeracy. And the sentiment back then was that all of the behavioral issues and the lack of pro-social skills was just a matter of engagement that we were one differentiated lesson or one student-centered project-based learning experience away from some kind of behavioral Xanadu. Google it, kids. Now here we are again. Rightly, I might add, recognizing that in the midst of, and now almost on the heels of the global pandemic, and I know we're not finished with the pandemic at all, but you understand, we're, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We recognize that our students' social emotional well-being needs to be purposefully developed and nurtured, and that we're not one intricate project-based experience or clever inquiry question away from a clear sense of self, balanced or mutually supportive relationships, and clear-headed decision-making. We need more and, and far less or, and we need to stop the pendulum swings and realize it's an intricate project-based experience and intentionality with students becoming more self-aware. It's clever inquiry-based projects and the development of social awareness and relationship skills. Nothing is going to develop through osmosis. And those who advocate that it will are at best exaggerating the impact of their own particular angle, or at worst, they are completely misleading those authentically looking for guidance. We don't need another binder. We need intention followed by action. And we need it to be an immersive, contextualized experience that is embedded within the academic learning. We can talk about the level of social awareness demonstrated by a character in a novel, for example. We can highlight specifics about self-management during an activity in PHE or while playing on a school sports team. Social awareness, of course, is a natural part of any group-based PBL experience where it's critical to actively listen to pay attention to nonverbal expression, you know, facial expressions or body language, and to empathize with a variety of perspectives within the team. Relationship skills permeate everything within the school setting and beyond, including how we resolve conflict, how we demonstrate cultural competence, our teamwork, you know, it's everywhere. And of course, responsible decision-making can be examined objectively through the past, looking at political or historical figures, or looking at how scientific breakthroughs occurred and what decisions led to those breakthroughs. So you can look at it objectively, or it could also be more personal as students examine their own critical thinking skills and the process they use to make responsible decisions for themselves and within the context of the people around them. Just that level of intention allows teachers to infuse SEL into almost everything. If you want it, teach it. Holding students accountable for social norms that haven't been taught is not only unfair, it's unethical. I mean, the formula is pretty simple. Teach what you want, allow the students ample opportunity to understand those expectations and social norms, purposefully set up opportunities for students to practice, and then provide feedback on that which is strong and that which needs strengthening. And even better, is to include the students in establishing those social norms in the first place because that will first immediately engage them as decision makers and second, 
it provides a wonderful opportunity for cultural relevance, since what constitutes appropriate in school has been so narrowly defined over the years, and it's time we expand that definition to be as culturally expansive and as culturally relevant as possible. Be open to the idea that there are other cultural norms that may not fit with your definition of what is appropriate or acceptable, but that doesn't make them any less appropriate or less acceptable. At the risk of sounding dramatic, we are at a crossroads right now where we have this opportunity to bring SEL and cultural expansiveness into the academic realm to finally stop the pendulum from swinging. Now, if your school is already overall experiencing high rates of pro-social behavior, then maybe you have the opportunity to quickly infuse SEL into your day-to-day -day experiences with your students. You know, you still need to take inventory on how inclusive and culturally expansive those gnomes are. You know, just because you have high rates of pro-social behavior doesn't mean what is considered pro-social is culturally inclusive and equity-driven. Compliance may be more of a distraction than an authentic measure, so we still need to take inventory on that. If you're in a school where you find lower rates of pro-social behaviors, you may have to establish context norms to ensure that the learning environment settles. You can still be culturally expansive and equity-driven, but you might be a little bit more adult-centered. Context matters, which is why this false dichotomy that some try to create between, for example, SEL and PBIS serves only to distract us from the potential positive outcomes. Again, if you have high rates of pro-social behaviors, then just begin with SEL competencies and backwards map the norms so that you can be poised for tier two and tier three interventions. While you might not have, for example, a lot of office discipline referrals or a lot, a lot of unruly behavior or anything like that, that doesn't mean the foundation need not be established. Remember, the intensity of any intervention has to match the intensity of the presenting challenge, which means we need a foundation upon which to increase the intensity. With no floor, so to speak, it would be challenging to know upon what the intervention is based on, especially for tier two, where the interventions are typically more of tier one. It's more intense, it's more frequent, it's more timely, more relevant. Now, again, as I mentioned earlier, low rates of pro-social behavior may require a more direct approach of establishing the expectations and norms and, and being more direct and intentional as you build that foundation. Of those creating an SEL versus PBIS dichotomy either don't know or are acting in their own self-interest, so I wouldn't listen to them personally. It's not about creating more rules either. As Stephen Covey once said, when mores are low, laws are unenforceable. When mores are high, laws are unnecessary. We know why we need policies and procedures in our schools for antisocial behavior, but our work should be to make those policies and procedures irrelevant, that we don't need them, that they are unnecessary. SEL matters because no matter where our students end up, they will always be social and they will always be emotional. The only question is whether they are competent or incompetent socially and emotionally in the variety of settings and relationships within which they find themselves. Remember to follow the podcast and stay up to date on social media. That's at Tom Schimmer Pod on Twitter, as well as at Tom Schimmer also on Twitter. Shimmer Education on Facebook, Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel, Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube as well. 
You can email the podcast with any feedback or questions you have for me, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. And please keep spreading the word about the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Happy summer, everyone. Happy summer, everyone.